Hello, everyone. Good evening, good morning, whatever time it is where you are. We are so excited to have you joining us for this inaugural event in what will be a series focused on a new world post-COVID that's organized through a collaborative effort by the Atlantic Institute, along with the Atlantic Fellows Programs, the Rhodes Trust, the Schmidt Science Fellows, and the Obama Fellows. I'm really thrilled. I've been loving looking at where all of you are from and how you are feeling at this moment. It is wonderful to have all of you in this Zoom room. So my name is Elizabeth Keish. I'm the warden of Rhodes House and CEO of the Rhodes Trust. It has been so inspiring for me over the last two months in these very, very difficult times to have what we refer to as our fellowship of fellowships, fellowship programs that share a commitment to bringing people together from around the world and across different disciplines and different sectors and different ways of life who care about building a better world. And that fellowship of fellowships is a very wide circle, but maybe at the heart of it is our beloved partnership with the Atlantic Institute and the seven Atlantic Fellows programs around the world of fellows who are working to create a fairer and more just and inclusive and healthier societies. Also included in that fellowship of fellowships is the Rhodes Scholars, both current scholars and alumni from around the world who are so committed to fighting the world's fight and making the world a better place. We also have with us this evening Schmidt Science Fellows, who are scientists who are engaged in building cross-disciplinary work and collaborations to address the most important challenges facing humanity. And then also the Obama Fellows, who we are thrilled to welcome into this collaboration. We're so honored for this inaugural event focused on universal health care and the care economy to welcome three extraordinary speakers. I'm truly honored to have Paul Farmer, Abdul Al-Sayed, and Ajahn Poo as our inaugural speakers. You're all three people whose work I admire personally deeply, and I know everyone here tonight is looking forward to hearing from you. As we think about how we envision a post-COVID world, it is so important to come together for these generative conversations. It's important to use tools which can enable us to build community even when we are in lockdown and in other ways isolated and unable to do the work perhaps that we would otherwise be wanting to do. We can still build connectivity, collaboration, and community. So thank you for joining us. And I look forward to what I know will be a very inspiring conversation. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce you to Tanya Charles, who will be the facilitator moderator for the evening or morning, wherever you are. Tanya is a senior fellow. We call them senior fellows, the alumni of our seven Atlantic Fellows programs, all with the Atlantic Institute brought together. So she's a senior fellow of the Atlantic Fellows program for Social and Economic Equity at the London School of Economics. And we are delighted that she has joined the Atlantic Institute as the Senior Fellows Engagement Lead. So Tanya, please take it away. Thank you so much, Dr. Elizabeth Keish, for that warm welcome and for welcoming all of us from all the corners of the planet where we currently sit. 
Before we proceed with tonight's webinar, I'd like us to just take a moment to observe silence for those we've lost to COVID-19, to give our energy to those who are battling this virus as medical staff and as carers. So I'd invite you to just close your eyes or bow your heads as we observe that moment. Thank you. It's really my honor and my privilege to host the first of what will be a series of exciting discussions and conversations imagining the world post-COVID. I think it's an important thing to retain our hope and our focus on what this moment can teach us for how to chart the way forward. As your moderator tonight, my name is Tanya, as Dr. Key said. I'm a fellow. I'm from Zimbabwe, so I'm representing Africa, including with my African beaded necklace. Now, I'm sure many of you are wondering, what is this new with a K? At the Atlantic Institute, we have a philosophy that a lot of the knowledge we have is not new. We know it, so hence the K. It's internal to us. It's something we've lived. It's something our ancestors have lived. So even as we explore new knowledge, new ways of being, we also can do that from our histories, from our authentic pasts, from our ancestors. And so all those forms of being are much welcome into the space. At this juncture, I would like to introduce the wonderful lineup of keynote speakers that we have for you today. We will begin with Dr. Paul Farmer, who many of you already know. Dr. Paul Farmer is, of course, a physician, co-founder of Partners in Health, as well as UN Special Advisor to the Secretary General on Community-Based Medicine. Paul Farmer will be delivering the first of tonight's keynotes. And so I will invite Dr. Paul Farmer to do exactly that. Thank you so much, Tanya. Well, you'd be happy to know that I'm not going to make a long presentation. First of all, I'm very honored to be here and thank my old friend Elizabeth for making it happen, particularly in the presence of two progressive social activists whose work I admire so deeply. What I will say by way of presentation, I'm an infectious disease doctor and an anthropologist, and I have been a medical professor. That's my day job. So the work that I'm lucky enough to do in Haiti, Rwanda, Malawi, wherever, a prison in Siberia, is afforded by that fortunate perch at a university. And I think it does remind us that there's always a reason to look back and say, well, what are the historical precedents here? And we've been doing a lot of that on Zoom at Harvard Medical School. I chair a department called Global Health and Social Medicine. Abdul has been involved in a very similar endeavor, and I'm sure many people in this room have. These are academic endeavors. So we're asking, well, what is the particular perspective that social medicine might offer on COVID? We've been doing this now every week for a couple of months. And my favorite parts, I mean, part of it is just hard to hear. You know, if you have a frontline report from Rikers Island, like we did this week, it's hard to hear. Or from a pediatrician anthropologist who's describing children who've been separated from their parents at a tender age who are now facing COVID and separation. So again, the material is very difficult affectively, but there's something we always learn when our colleagues who are social historians, medical historians, start talking about, let's say, influenza in 1918 and what social distancing activities occurred then and how effective they were. Anyway, these are always useful. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about 
being an infectious disease physician, activist, and teacher in West Africa during the Ebola epidemic that began probably in December of 2013. And what I will say at the outset is this, that it's easy to look for similarities, but this in fact was an epidemic, not a pandemic. 99% of all the cases that occurred in this two plus year long outbreak of Ebola occurred in three countries, Liberia, Sierra Leone, or Guinea. Whereas this is a real epidemic, and it's global in scope, so going to be nature. The modes of transmission are different. This is a respiratory virus. We have ample reason to worry that it spread through respiratory route. That really wasn't the case with Ebola. But the main thing that I'd like to bring out, which I worry we often forget, is that any time, at least for the last 100 plus years, when you've had an outbreak of a transmissible pathogen like this one, For the last hundred years, the machinery response has usually shuttled between a very uncomfortable commitment to disease control, to containment, and on the other, a much more comfortable but still inadequate focus on caregiving. So the control over care paradigm that makes so many of us uncomfortable is fundamentally one that was worked out on the continent of Africa under colonial rule. So we have already this enormous conflation in our minds, at least anybody who looks at the disease containment responses by looking to Africa under colonial rule, which is where we should look, because that's, again, that's where the most extreme versions of these responses came to pass. When we look, we see that disease control was almost always privileged above caregiving, as long as we're talking about the natives. And that, by the way, was the term used throughout that century and still gets used today. Like if you're in Sierra Leone, where colonial rule ended in the 1960s, you hear people all the time talking about natives. You look around and say, well, where's everybody else if we're talking about the natives? And uh, in fact, anything that isn't in the formal biomedical response for an epidemic is usually called discussions of native business. You know, this is a very deep-seated prejudice in a feature of places that were developed or not developed under colonial rule. So the warning I want to give from Ebola is that this storied quest for trust, which we're hearing a lot about, like why is Germany able to come out of this so far so much less scathed in Lombardy or its neighbors elsewhere on continental Europe or across the channel? Why is this? And you'll immediately hear people start to talk about trust. Well, Germany also has a very robust ICU system with more beds per capita by far than other European nations of the United States, which is one reason that case fatality rate among those sickened was low. And again, when we talk about trust, as we did during the Ebola epidemic, as we did during the one that followed in the Congo, we really need to be a little bit more careful about remembering the material constraints that populations face. In order to respond to this, whether you're in South Africa or London or Oxford or New York City or Lombardy or rural Haiti, you require staff and stuff and space and systems. And right now we're dealing with a world in which some people have those things and others fewer of them. And that's why it's my hope for this evening's discussion and certainly given the other two speakers and the audience that we will attack how social inequalities 
get into the body and what we could do to get them out. Because that, I believe, is what we were called to do, to think about what could happen after COVID. And either we make a strong move for more progressive social policies around our insurance, including unemployment insurance and health insurance, our medical system, which is poorly designed for these kinds of challenges. So this is our big chance to seize this moment and push forward meaningful progressive reform. And I think that's going to be true in the criminal justice system and perhaps even in education, housing, and other persistent social problems that we've faced, not only in the United States, but I mentioned already the former colonies in Africa. And so I close my opening comments with a certain sort of optimism. Yes, we are called to have optimism. In my vocation in Abdul's, we're, we better have it. But there are openings here that I certainly haven't seen in my adult lifetime. And so I'm hoping we will seize them in good faith. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Dr. Farmer, really for setting the tone and bringing to the fore the question around how social inequalities get into the body. I think that's really a powerful way to put it in how they sort of permeate throughout our society to arrive at this moment where some have access to healthcare and some don't. We'd also like to turn the same question around what next to Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. He is a Rhodes Scholar, a physician, epidemiologist, and recently a writer. He has just this year published a book called Healing Politics, as well as many other publications that focus on health epidemics and what he calls empathy politics. Dr. El-Sayed, I would love to invite you to give your perspective on this topic. Tanya, thank you so much. And to the Fellowship of Fellows, really grateful to be invited, especially to share a stage with two folks whose work I deeply admire. I think Dr. Farmer really laid out some of the broader issues in question when we think about how this pandemic has changed the conversation and the substance of how we think about suffering and disease, forcing us to ask really important questions about who we serve and how we serve them. I'm hoping to try and answer three questions that I get asked a lot. The first is why was this so bad in the United States? We account for a third of the world's total cases, a disproportionate number of deaths on top of that. And then number two, why has it affected particular communities so deeply in the United States? We know that 60% of all COVID-19 deaths uh, are in counties that are majority black in the United States. So I want to speak to that challenge. And then the third is I want to talk a little bit about why this is so surprising because there's a bit of an intellectual firewall that we have in high-income countries often had about disease. Dr. Farmer talked about Ebola, and Ebola was always something that happened over there, right? Diseases happened over there. They didn't necessarily happen here. And I want to think a little bit about why we had that kind of intellectual firewall in the way that we thought about disease and what it means for the way that we need to think about global health governance moving forward. So the first question is, why was it so bad in the United States? I want to speak to a very particular reality about how we think about health and more importantly, how we in our society implicitly monetize health and the way that our healthcare system is set up. In the United States, unlike in almost every high-income country in the world, we have both a private provider system and a private payer system. Providers are the doctors and hospitals that you go to to get care, and then payers are the insurance companies that ideally you pay some amount every couple of weeks so that they've got your back if you get sick. But the financial transaction in the healthcare system is between two private entities. 
And oftentimes it's easy when you think about yourself as the recipient of healthcare to think about yourself as the customer. But if you think about it, right, you pay to have access to an insurance company, and then that insurance company pays for your healthcare. And if you're the reason why a financial transaction happens between one private entity and another, you're not really the customer. Because usually, if you want to be the customer, you're one of those private entities. You're moving money to get a good. In fact, instead, you're more the product. And this way of thinking about the healthcare system, I think, opens up a lot of both important questions, but I hope some insights. You think about the way our healthcare system works and the fact that despite spending 18% of our GDP per capita in the United States on healthcare, we spend only 2.5% of that on prevention. And we have assented to a governing consensus that, in effect, has us privatizing public goods and cutting funding for those kinds of public service goods like public health that could have been so important in helping us prevent this on the front end. And so that also means that if you have private goods, private goods are generally excludable. In the United States, 10% of Americans don't have access to healthcare coverage at all. And then among those who do, right, who have access to a health insurer, the median deductible, meaning the amount of money you have to pay just to get access to the insurance that you already paid for, is about $5,000. The average American who has health insurance doesn't pay that down until May 19th. So functionally, even if you have health insurance, your healthcare is behind a paywall for almost half of the year. And that's if you have health insurance. And then beyond that, right, you've got a ton of crosstalk that happens between a lot of providers and a lot of payers. And so you think about them, every one of them has their own information management system. Every one of them has to be able to crosstalk and to bill one another and to end up having a situation where even if you had all of the testing, for example, that you needed, the ability to crosstalk between systems means that you can't actually efficiently move money to pay for tests. And so they don't get done. And so you have the scenario now that's maddening to everybody where we finally sort of caught up with having maybe the amount of tests that are appropriate to this level of a pandemic. But if you have an institution that has excess testing and an institution who needs tests, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can efficiently move between each other because we have such a disjunct system. And then lastly, we have a for-profit healthcare system that means that the whole point here is a profit margin. And if the goal here is a profit margin, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be able to scale. It just means that you need to be able to make sure that your incoming revenues are greater than what you pay out. And so it incentivizes these kinds of traditional business approaches to healthcare that include things like just-in-time supply chain. Just-in-time may be great if you are running a restaurant. It's not so great if you're facing a global pandemic and you're just-in-time with all your PPE or just-in-time with all your ventilators. And even beyond that, the fact that our medical device industry and pharmaceutical industry are so dominated by corporations meant that we couldn't even fulfill our strategic supply. So the New York Times reported on a story where the CDC had signed a contract with a small corporation to make ventilators that could go into the national strategic stockpile. And then that small corporation got bought by a very, very large corporation. And I kid you not, the name of this corporation is Covidian. Covidian buys this small company, decides that the profit margins on these ventilators isn't big enough and just cancels the contract. And so the ways that we've thought about healthcare have just fundamentally stymied us. And then lastly, on this point, you look at the way our healthcare system works. Well, most of the dollars come in from payers to providers by means of elective surgeries. They are the highest profit margin service that a healthcare system can provide. Well, if you're facing down a global pandemic, you cancel your elective surgeries because that's the obvious thing to do. But that also means that you're literally cutting your financial supply line at the same time that you are about to face down the biggest single global pandemic in the last 102 years. 
And here we are. We have healthcare systems that are literally trying to fight COVID-19 on one hand and trying to battle off bankruptcy on the other. And we've had this paradoxical situation where healthcare companies are now laying off clinical staff in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic because they can't figure out how to pay them. All of this goes to the point where we've needed healthcare reform in this country for a long time. I've got another book coming out on Medicare for All. We can talk about that later, but it does speak to the fact that you look at the ways that even national healthcare systems outside the United States have been privatized. And I do hope that this example of how the United States healthcare system has failed serves as a really important harbinger of the potential damage that could come if, in fact, other countries were to privatize. I want to speak now to point about disparities. I noted that point at the top that 60% of all COVID-19 deaths have come in counties that were majority black. And I know that that is not the direct statistic, but here's the thing. In the United States, people are really reticent to actually collect data and report data about race. And so the best we have is about counties, unfortunately. But we do know that in communities that have counted, like in Detroit, where I used to be health commissioner, we know that 40% of all deaths as of about three weeks ago were the black Michiganders, whereas 14% of the population is black. And that speaks to something that's far bigger than the healthcare system itself. It speaks to the legacy of structural racism in our society. Hired to rebuild the health department in Detroit in 2015 after it was privatized in 2012. Now get this, it was privatized in 2012 because the state made the decision to appoint an emergency manager to basically take over all operations of the city of Detroit when the city of Detroit was facing bankruptcy. Now you ask yourself, how does a city face bankruptcy? Well, that has a lot to do with the way that the Detroit geography was settled. So Detroit became a big booming city during the Great Migration, the big flow of African Americans from the South up to the North to take jobs in the automotive industry in the early 1900s. But they were afforded the worst quality jobs that paid the least, and they were actively redlined into the poorest parts of the city. Now, after World War II, there was a gigantic building of highways. And of course, Detroit being the home of the automobile, those highways went right into town and they basically decimated their mass transit system. And what happened is during the New Deal in the 1940s, right before World War II, there was a federal housing administration and that federal housing administration basically actively carried out the same redlining and said, if you were white, you could buy a home in the suburbs, which were now connected to the cities because of the highway boom. But if you were black, you couldn't. And so that left the lowest income black folks in the city, left white flight happening out of the city. And now you all of a sudden have a city that carries 1.8 million and it only has about 700,000 people who are systematically poorer and more marginalized. And now, right, you have a bureaucracy that was built for 1.8 million servicing 700,000 people who can't necessarily sustain that bureaucracy. The state comes in, passes this emergency manager law that basically says that they can appoint a czar to take over the finances of the city that has the end outcome of shutting down the health department in the city of Detroit. Fast forward, now the city of Detroit is battling COVID-19 with a health department that's functionally five years old. Above and beyond that, we know that access to a set of basic things, clean air, clean water, a home that is not leaded, doesn't have lead-based paint, a grocery store that sells green leafy vegetables, a walkable community, that those things predict the health conditions that we know portend worse outcomes with COVID-19. So if you look at asthma, for example, in the city of Detroit, threefold the probability of asthma hospitalizations than the state average. Why? Because you have a concentration of high polluting corporations right within the city limits. That has everything to do with political economy and the ability to advocate if uh, you have means versus if you don't. You look at diabetes rates, you look at hypertension rates, you look at cardiovascular disease. 
all of these higher rates in the city of Detroit, all of these patterned by the same structural social forces that created the circumstances that I just talked about. And so these disparities are deeply predictable. And I hear often that, you know, viruses don't discriminate and we're all in this together. Viruses don't discriminate. That's true. But people discriminate. And that means that some of us are more in this than others. And I think it is critical for us to appreciate that fact. And then the last point I want to make is just about this firewall. We had thought for a long time, I grew up between the United States and Egypt. My family is extremely low income in Egypt. My grandmother was illiterate, never got to go to school. She lost two of her babies of eight that she had. And I spent a lot of my summers with her. You know, as somebody who spent a substantial amount of my childhood in a middle income country in Egypt, there was always a sense that when I travel between Egypt and the United States, I was traveling between different worlds. It was everything from the opportunities that people had, the way the world looked around you, the way that the commerce and the economy happened, to the experiences that people had. The fact that people in Egypt are just that much more comfortable with death because it happens so much more often. And so I had, in part, this firewall in my mind that death and disease, particularly infectious disease, was something that happened over there. But the fact of the matter is, is when I would travel those 15 hours, I traveled 10 years difference of life expectancy. I grew up just north of Detroit. And I could travel 25 miles south on one of those highways that was built right after World War II. And I traveled the same 10-year life expectancy gap. We have built the vulnerability that created the circumstances that we are now facing over the past 40, 50, 60 years in the choices that we have made as a society about how we pattern basic access to resources. And I think it's critical for us to appreciate that because what had protected us in the past was the fact that we've been able to build a level of infrastructure based on an understanding of our responsibility to collective action and our willingness to create a society that was equitable and equal enough where we appreciated that we were as exposed as our most exposed people. And what I think has happened in the United States, certainly, but often in a large part in high-income societies in general, is that we have assented for long enough to a governing consensus that tells us that we're not actually all in this together, that it is okay for us to cut the resources that people have relied upon for a long time so that we can pass tax cuts to major corporations and that inequality has not caught up to us. It shows up in the way that we've built our healthcare system. It shows up in the failure of our public health institutions. It shows up in the deep vulnerability that people have had to this, the fact that people have to choose between staying home and saving a life or going out and saving a livelihood. And it's shown us that the reasons why we had been able to take it for granted that things like this couldn't happen here for so long had everything to do with choices that we made. And once we stopped making those choices, that in fact, actually all of us are vulnerable as societies, if and when we are unwilling to invest in what protects us and what empowers us all. And so I think this is a really important learning opportunity. And I think there's so much we have to learn from this moment about what we need to build, both in societies like my own in the United States, but also how much more responsibility we really have to investing in the sum total of us all. Thank you so, so much, Dr. El-Sayed. Really resonant comments there. I think for me, what stands out is that COVID is a story of poverty. It's a story of racial inequity. It's a story, more acutely, of how the healthcare system is premised on financial profit. And you are inviting us to challenge the very structures and systems that have fed and led into the current status of healthcare especially as related to dealing with the virus. I'd like to invite now Agent Poole to speak about another aspect of this question that we have around health and healthcare. Agent Poole is a labor activist, actually a world-renowned labor activist. She's also director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, as you know. Agent is also a 2014 recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award. 
just very many accolades in celebration of her work and thought leadership in the area of care. And so we'll invite Adrian to bring forth her perspective on this topic. Adrian, thank you so much. Thank you, Tanya. And wow, what an amazing set of presentations from Paul and Abdul. A big Zoom applause for all of that insight. And thank you for your leadership. It's an honor to be shoulder to shoulder, Zoom to Zoom with you. So as Tanya said, I'm with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and we represent a different part of the care economy from the one that we've been discussing. It's the part of the care economy that exists in our homes. The workforce that supports our families with caregiving and cleaning services, the women, mostly women, over 90% women, and disproportionately women of color and immigrant women who work as nannies, house cleaners, and home care workers. And this is a workforce that makes everything else possible in our lives because they ensure that the most precious aspects of our lives are in good hands, making it possible for us to go out and do what we do in the world every day. And yet it's some of the most undervalued and insecure work in our entire economy. One of our members named Melissa is a home care worker in Miami, Florida, and mother of one, single mom of a six-year-old. Her life has been upended by the COVID crisis. She was a caregiver for a 94-year-old in their home. And when the COVID crisis happened, the daughter of her client decided that she didn't want Melissa to continue to come. So she lost her job overnight. And immediately, food security became an urgent issue. And she's like many others in our network. So we are a listening organization, and we have a community of about 230,000 domestic workers around the United States. And we immediately started listening by every channel that we could to domestic workers to understand their experiences, to understand how widespread Melissa's experience was. And what we were hearing early was that domestic workers were experiencing incredible job loss and income loss. And this is a workforce that earned poverty wages. The average wage of a home care worker pre-COVID was $16,000 per year. No access to paid sick days or paid family leave or a safety net or health care, really any benefits whatsoever. And so we knew that there wasn't going to be money to stock up on groceries or supplies. We knew that food insecurity was going to be a huge issue immediately. And we knew that this was going to be a devastating moment for domestic workers around the country. So we immediately pivoted into response mode. And our response strategies are rooted in our strategies as a movement. We believe that making meaningful change will require change on multiple fronts. At the heart and soul of it will be the power of workers and the community of workers that we represent, but that we need to engage voters, we need to change policy, we need to think about innovation and how that can be deployed. And we need to be thinking about the cultural narratives that are shaping the moment and how to intervene on them in a way that supports greater equity and support for this workforce. And so what we immediately pivoted towards was on the culture change front, understanding that we were suddenly in a moment where everyone was experiencing the immediate challenges of being a caregiver, children home from school, parents being pulled out of nursing homes, trying to navigate how to take care of yourself and your own family's health and safety in the midst of a pandemic 
everything getting exacerbated, that all of a sudden Americans were in such immediate proximity to the crisis of care that our country has been slowly unfolding over many decades. And previously, issues of child care and long-term care were very much seen as an individual personal burden and responsibility, and not as much seen as a collective responsibility in need of a public solution. And this could be the moment to really start to think about what is our collective responsibility to ensure that we can take care of ourselves and the people who we count on to take care of us. It was an opportunity to uplift just how essential caregivers are and to start to understand what valuing care collectively in our country looks like. So we launched a campaign called Care for All to really uplift caregiving as a collective responsibility and to honor everyone who is caring in the midst of our crisis. The next thing we started to understand was that all of a sudden people were awakening to just how essential so many invisible sectors of work are from the grocery worker to the sanitation worker to the domestic worker, the home care worker, or the house cleaner, suddenly there was a greater awareness. There is a greater awareness now about just how essential so many low-wage service jobs are and just how vulnerable these workers are. And so we've been working in partnership with members of Congress, Senator Warren, Representative Khanna, to develop an Essential Workers Bill of Rights and really build support and momentum behind a policy solution that really provides for hazard pay, protective equipment, health care, child care, everything that our essential workers need to stay safe in this moment as a way of both protecting the people who are saving us, protecting us, keeping us safe, and also keeping the economy together, but also to lay the groundwork for a new framework around rights and a safety net for working people, especially those segments of the economy that have been so profoundly undervalued and insecure for too long. We were listening and we were hearing that a lot of workers were losing their employment, but also so many caregivers were continuing to work. There were the nannies who were supporting the emergency room doctors with childcare. There were the home care workers who were providing life-saving services for elders, people with disabilities, people with Alzheimer's and other chronic illnesses, the only lifeline to groceries, to medication, to safety. And in those instances, we really needed to continue to support this workforce to stay safe and stay healthy and to be able to continue to go to work. And there were so many concerns about how to do that. Do I take the bus? Do I not take the bus, right? How do I keep myself safe? And so we launched a COVID-ready caregiver training program that has really short videos, mobile enabled, that cover all ranges of questions that home care workers and nannies who are caring for children have about how to keep themselves and the people that they support safe during this crisis. And the pickup has been amazing. Over 180,000 downloads of our educational videos just in the last three weeks. So there's a huge need for real information out there that we're trying to meet. 
And what we were hearing was the importance of community and connection in this moment. So many people are feeling alone and isolated, especially the people who are continuing to work as home care workers. So we've launched a peer-to-peer emotional support text line called Care Together to help caregivers when they need support, when they have a question, when they're just feeling alone or depressed to be able to reach out and get support. What we found is that communities of people are really our greatest resilience strategy, that the workers who are part of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and our sister campaign, Caring Across Generations, they are more resilient. They're in a better position to navigate this crisis because of their connection to each other and to us and the resources that an organization like ours can offer. It just is an affirmation of just how important so many organizations in the social sector are because of the community and the anchor that they create for vulnerable populations in these times. And then there came the problem of the financial crisis that was hitting this workforce. And so we decided very early on, as we were hearing the first reports of job and income loss and realizing that every single week it was increasing dramatically, that we had to find a simple solution for the need for cash. And so we launched what is called the Coronavirus Care Fund, an emergency cash assistance fund to support domestic workers in need. And since we launched on March 16th, we've raised over $20 million for domestic workers in need, and we'll be able to provide $400 payments to more than 50,000 workers. The beautiful thing about this fund is more than 100,000 people, 100,000 individuals have contributed to this fund. And some of the donations are $25, and some of them are much larger, but it is a small indication of the incredible sense of generosity and compassion and connection that people feel right now, and the desire to be a part of the solution. With this fund, our goal was to quickly leverage our 70 local affiliate organizations and chapters around the country who have deep relationships with domestic workers in the community. Plus, through our innovation lab, I mentioned earlier that innovation, tech innovation is one of our strategies. Through our innovation lab, we had already spent four years developing a technology platform that would help domestic workers get access to a safety net for the very first time. I mentioned that most domestic workers do not have access to a safety net. And so we spent four years trying to develop a solution to that, designing for the hardest use case, the unbanked, sometimes undocumented, domestic worker with multiple clients, piecing together multiple gigs. How do you design a safety net for that person? And we've, over four years, figured it out. And our most popular product was a paid time off product delivered in the form of a Visa gift card valued at $120 per day off. And what we did was we redeployed the ALEA technology that was delivering paid time off to domestic workers towards delivering emergency cash assistance for domestic workers in this period. And we worked with our network of community-based organizations to develop our eligibility and verification processes. And we have been able to stand up this fund and deliver assistance quickly because of all of that work and that history, those relationships over the years. 
We are currently deploying $400 in immediate cash assistance to domestic workers around the country, leveraging that ALIA platform as the tech infrastructure. And we've come a long way in just 45 days, a little bit in the weeds, but we are now, thanks to a group of Google engineers who've embedded in our team, we're now actually scaling the platform and we're going to be able to automate a whole bunch of the steps of the process and be able to support many other organizations and entities who are struggling with how to deliver cash assistance to vulnerable populations in this moment. So our product will be ready to go live for greater scale and speed very soon. And so far, this is what we've been able to do. We've received 6,211 applications. Almost 6,000 of them have been approved. And we've been able to deploy $2 million in cash, and we're about to scale up what is going out the door. The impact is really important. It's key. One of our members who was a home care worker and lost her job and receiving the cash assistance has meant that she's able to buy food and other basic needs. This is what we found is that most of the workers who receive assistance are using the money for food. That's just how dire it is right now. Marina, who's a nanny in New York and also a primary income earner for her family. She is also prioritizing food and is not eligible because of her immigration status for any other forms of federal assistance that are available. Alicia, who is a mom of three and a nanny in Atlanta, and all of her kids are immunocompromised. And so keeping them safe and healthy has been a real struggle. And so she's using her fund for all kinds of food, medications, but it's like essential, essential items that people are struggling with affording right now that we can provide a small stopgap for. But the truth is, is that no matter how great we are at fundraising and how advanced our technology is, we can never replace a strong federal safety net. And it's not our job to do that. On one level, it's a little bit ridiculous that we have to try. And so here we are, we are trying our best to meet this moment, but what it really signals is the opportunity for transformation that Dr. Farmer and Abdul named, which is that we have to come out of this crisis with a total reimagining of our safety net for workers in the United States it's been patchwork at best. And I believe, as many do, that if we do not have an inclusive relief process, a robust recovery process will be impossible. Every single worker that I talk to is essential and will be essential to our recovery and will be essential to the United States becoming the country that it can be. The, it begins with a strong federal safety net and we also believe there's an opportunity here to transform our care economy in such a way that really updates it for the 21st century in a way that's long overdue, just like what Abdul named about our healthcare system. The fact that families have no support whatsoever when it comes to their childcare or their long-term care needs is insane. The fact that our care infrastructure relies on overstretched family caregivers and underpaid care workers is completely unsustainable and untenable, especially in light of the growing older population in this country. 
we have an opportunity to invest in care jobs and make them good jobs, living wage jobs with real benefits where you can take pride in those jobs and support your family. And those are job enabling jobs. So as we start to move towards talking about what it's going to take to get America back to work again, investing in those jobs that are here to stay, that can't be outsourced and won't be automated. These jobs are critical and they are going to help enable everyone else to go to work, knowing that their children and their aging loved ones are in good hands. So I do think that this is a moment of transformation. It's a moment of incredible opportunity and it's a moment that requires all of us to really stretch in order to meet that opportunity. Thank you so much, Adrian, for really bringing to the fore the question, should care be an individual issue or should we find a collective public solution? To our panelists, thank you for really bringing out the structural as well as the systemic causes of the current nightmare we're in, not the virus, but our response to it. It is really a privilege and honor to draw this webinar to a close by handing over to our interim executive director, Evie O'Brien, who has actually inspired many aspects of the webinar format that we've experienced today, including the importance of bringing our authentic selves and our new knowledge and experiences into the space. Evie, I'll hand over to you just to officially close. Thank you, Tanya. I can't stop smiling and it's my huge honour and privilege on behalf of Rhodes Trust, the Atlantic Fellows Community, the Obama Fellows, the Schmidt Science Fellows, to thank you, our incredible speakers, and all of you who have participated from every corner of the world. As we begin to, together in this community, imagine or reimagine what our new world might look like and what we might learn from this current crisis and importantly draw on our own communities and ancestors' memories of what has been before. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, Igen, Abdul, Elizabeth, Chris, our scholars, alumni, fellows and staff who have joined this conversation. Nay kamahi. In reimagining our future, there is no time like the present to avoid the terrible mistakes of the past in the present and to take the very best of what we have collectively into the future. As Igen said, as an ecosystem of diverse leaders and agents of change. To this end, I'd just like to close off by just uh, letting you know about next week's webinar, which will be another experience of music or conversation of incredible speakers. And the topic is, as we've spoken about in this conversation, leadership and global solidarity. Again, amazing speakers. Tonya Cole, uh, who is an alumnus of the University of Lagos and Harvard University, a transformational leadership fellow at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford, and also Lena Wen, an American ER physician who is one of the many faces of leadership in the US for COVID response. And we're incredibly proud to have those two speakers join us next week, as well as a surprise. And so I'll just leave it as a surprise. Finally, I really want to acknowledge on behalf of everyone, Tanya, for your extraordinary gift of holding such a diverse ecosystem of leaders together. We thank you, we honour you. And if you are an indication, as 
everyone in this room of the leadership that will take us into the future. We are incredibly proud and express our appreciation.